0: Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks on a Move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 231. Well, just ahead, SoftBank takes it on the chin with a multi-billion yen WeWork loss. Plus, chips for cars are a problem, but not for NXP semiconductors. And a fascinating conversation with Avidel Pharmaceutical CEO Greg Divis. His company has what could be relief for people with narcolepsy, a terrifying condition that affects some 50,000 people in the U.S. But the drug could cost them over $212,000 a year. We'll have that interesting interview in just a bit. But first, it's sponsor time.
1: The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com slash drill down, and you can get 20% off if you use our link, braintrust.com slash drill down.
0: I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to Futurum's Drill Down, where we explain the business stories behind stocks and move. Joining me on a functioning mic, just like my (laughs) functioning mic, Ben Wilson, who's been with the Drill Down from the start. Ben, uh, it's been a minute since we've been doing this.
1: It has. It has been a minute. Sometimes I look at our episode count and think to myself, there's no way we've been doing it for that long. And then I think about how many years it's been. And I still think there's no way. Yes, I was. was,
0: I know. I was working on the script that I typed 231. I'm like, no, that's that can't be right.
1: But it is. <laughs> Speaking of, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's look at Clear Secure. Clear Secure trades with the ticker Y-O-U with a market cap of about $3 billion. Shares were up 14% in the last week. But despite this week's rise, for the last 12 months, shares are down 19%. What's the story with Clear Secure?
0: Well, Ben, you travel plenty. Uh, are you clear mm-hmm. TSA pre? Any of that? All of that? I
1: travel enough that when I walk by it, I think to myself, "Man, I should have done that before this trip," <laughs> but I haven't. <laughs> I haven't done TSA that's pre actually, clear.
0: It's uh, actually a huge driver um, uh, with with um, with clear is when the lines are bad at TSA pre clear gets a boost in signups, and that may be what they saw happen this quarter. So mm. the bull case on clear was was this. Uh, this post COVID revenge travel and the concern had been that maybe there's been an abatement of that. And yet Q3 numbers out this week showed that uh, there, things were pretty strong. There are about 7 million of us clear plus members, people like me. Um, although those people are probably better than me, but there, there, there are people like me who jumped jump to that clear line. Um, they have had a 38% increase in revenue year over year accounting to counting to about $160 million in the quarter. 38% growth uh, uh, in their revenues and a 32% increase in total bookings. Now, that's way down from the 40% of the previous quarter, but it's still strong with $192 million. So, again, 40% bookings growth down from 32% last quarter. Uh, and yet, I'm sorry, 32% booking growth down from 40% last quarter. And yet, um, a solid net income of, of 27 million bucks. And they issued a special dividend. They're going to uh, add to their share buyback. That sent the stock flying, Uh, but the big driver is long lines at the airport. And when TSA installed some new scanners earlier this year, it led to those lines, and that led to people saying, I can't take it anymore, I'm sending it for Clear, which is exactly how I sent it for Clear a couple years ago. Um, But those long lines uh, for for regular people is good news for Clear's business. Here's Clear Secure CEO Karen Seidman Becker talking about new hardware, both for Clear and for the TSA.
2: You might see some new hardware in the lane, which we're very excited about. But, you know, I think it's really important to know when you think about face first and customers not breaking stride, when you think about seamlessly integrating into TSA's hardware, that it should be materially faster and scalable from where we are today. And we're incredibly focused on that, right? We need to continue to drive our member experience forward in an at-scale way. Travel's a mess and volumes are gonna continue to grow. So the onus is on us to deploy this kind of technology, right, so face from fingerprint and eyes, not breaking stride, seamless digital integration into TSA hardware. And so next-gen identity and face are the unlocks for that and while i can't give you an exact second what i can say is it's materially faster as well as scalable because we expect volumes to grow from here going back to our 1 million more everyday theme coming in 2030 which is kind of around the corner
0: so there are concerns with clear there's there's hair on it ben with uh with uh suddenly a lot of discounts both credit cards and everywhere is signed, signed out of something someone They're offering you a teaser rate with Clear. Maybe not a sign of strength. I don't know. Um, And Clear with other venues outside of the airport um, was long the bull case and remains so, but it hasn't taken off like some had hoped. Nonetheless, a strong quarter from Clear, um, although there may be clouds on the horizon.
1: Yeah, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Corey, what is your next drill down?
0: I want to look at NXP Semiconductors.
1: NXP Semiconductors. Trades with the ticker NXPI with a market cap of about $47 Shares were up 2% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares are up 17%. So what's the story with NXP Semiconductors?
0: So NXP, interesting company. They first, uh, at least I became first aware of them right before their IPO when they were making the chips that would do this thing where your phone, where you could just touch your phone on something and it would recognize who you are, or allow you to pay in theory. Well, that was NXP's initial big business, but automotive chips has been a major source of revenue for the company, accounting for about half their annual sales. Uh, But in the third quarter, which they just reported, automotive chip sales grew at less than 5% year over year. That's the slowest growth rate for that segment in three years, but it's consistent with other signs that car makers are finally scaling back on chip orders and inventories are piling up. So the concern was NXP will come out and tell us, yeah, we had lousy growth and huge inventories, but it sounds like they thought that now, yes, the slowdown in automotive chip sales is a big challenge for them, um, but the rest of their business is doing okay. Communications infrastructure, like 5g networks, routers, data switches doing okay, but uh industrial fine automotive, a problem. Uh, AI is some hope for them in those network and data center sales. Now, the company are uh, talking about automotive and got a lot of questions uh, during the conference call about that. NXP uses a, a term they called SAR or seasonally adjusted annual rate. Basically it's like a Kager sort of, uh, but their annual rate of change um, uh, is not compounded, but it's, it's a seasonally adjusted number that takes out the big uh, times when cars are made and made less or more to give you an annual number. And these SAR, the underlying SAR Not good for automotive, but listen to how they manage inventory, inventory. I said, listen to how they manage inventory from CEO Kurt
3: Sievers. The SAR, the underlying SAR growth next year is going to be less than it was this year. Um, I think the, um, mix or the penetration to XCV vehicles is better. Uh, as we discussed earlier, so going to the forty plus percent level, so that's supportive relative to this year, so it drives further content from where we are. I agree with your statement about more neutral pricing i think that's a, that's a fair assumption uh, across the board uh, and having said all of that, the only remaining piece next to our company specific growth drivers, which are well uh, in place, the only remaining piece is the this cycle of inventory digestion and going back to normal end demand, which is which is kicking through to our revenue. Currently, I can only repeat it. We are under shipping demand, and again, we do this intentionally. We've done it for a few quarters already. It's going to be another couple of quarters, but maybe it's fair to assume by, by middle of next year that it's behind us, and then uh, the revenue growth rate in automotive and everything else will go back much closer to what the real end demand is. Um, think about it this way. But so it is really misleading to just look at annual revenue growth in automotive um, against SAR because there is so many other things at work, especially this inventory cycle.
0: So under shipping uh, is a rare thing in the world of semiconductors, but it can be done. And we see with NXP and it sounds, Ben, like a smart move to me. Sounds like it.
1: Corey, what is your next drill down?
0: Ben, let's look at the SoftBank Group.
1: SoftBank Group trades actively as an ADR in the U.S. with the ticker SFTBY. It's a monster with a market cap of about $61 Shares were flat this week, but for the last 12 months, shares are down 13%. So compare that to the S&P 500, up 10% in that time. What's the story with SoftBank Group?
0: Well, the story is huge losses as the majority owner of the now bankrupt WeWork um, the SoftBank Vision Fund, uh, Vision Fund One, um, lost a total of, you you can't say this number enough, $14.3 billion on WeWork. They lost $14.3 billion. How much, Ben? $14.3 billion on WeWork. <laughs> $14.3 Now, in billion this quarter, uh, that entire loss is not recognized. Uh, for the quarter ended September 30, SoftBank said that they lost uh, $6.2 billion total for the company that's the number right but uh it was their fourth consecutive quarter in the red now we don't want to confuse uh this softbank softbank group with the related but different company softbank softbank kk that is a telecommunications company and it is interesting in its own right also reported earnings this week and that company is suffering from lower revenue per customer for the japanese mobile phone market really suffering arpu's average revenue per customer well, those ARPU gains, growing pains, I should say, are a problem for SoftBank KK. And that amplifies, magnifies the losses at SoftBank Group because of these lousy investments, which include WeWork. Now, the company invested in uh, uh, in Arm, the semiconductor company that went public recently, one of the biggest, third biggest uh, um, IPO ever, Uh, It showed some gains for this quarter in their arm investment, but only because they wrote it down before the investment. It's a bunch of, um, I won't call it financial engineering, but it's a bunch of uh, accounting um, uh, changes that resulted in something that uh, uh, was a big loss before, but now it's a little better than the big loss. It's only somewhat less than a big loss, and now it shows up as a gain. And that means this quarter would have been worse. WeWork would have made things worse, but the... uh, Rewriting of the uh, ARM loss uh, made it look like a gain in this quarter. So something of a gain in this quarter for ARM. Uh, a huge loss WeWork, but again, fourteen point three billion lost by investing in WeWork, and they could have got out of that with only about five billion lost uh, in, in a couple of years back in 2019. But decided, no, we're going to double down here. We want to get more involved in WeWork. We're going to put another nine billion in. And that was all Masa-san, uh, Masayoshi-san, the the person who is the the, the sun god of of uh, of, um, of SoftBank Group. And so the SoftBank Group earnings were interesting this quarter. But I thought that, um, you know, there's, there's, there's two investment funds. Vision Fund 1 was this giant $100 billion fund that made everyone's jaw drop just because of the size of it. And the Saudis who had a lot of money in it and so on. Um And uh, Vision Fund 1 had a certain investment style that that Masi's son says Vision Fund 2 will not. And although it's a little dated, I wanted you to hear at least the translation of the live press conference that they had a year ago when these losses started to show up and the results started to turn sour for Vision Fund 1. And Masi's son saying, well, I just kind of went on instinct and I just kind of went... you know, uh, like a baseball player. I didn't really know what I was doing. I just took a swing. I took some big swings. I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Now I'm going to try to get experts for Vision Fund 2. It's going to be different this time. I promise it's going to be this different this time. So here is the translation, the live translation from a few months ago, maybe a year ago, August of 2022, of Masa's son, talking about how this time it's going to be different by translation
4: we'd been making a big swing and couldn't hit the ball. That was uh, happened in the Vision Fund One because my feeling was very strong, my emotion was very strong to specific uh, companies or business, so that's something that I learned. So we became more uh, systematic and also smaller tickets Uh, and try to make sure that uh, we have uh, better profitability uh, in Vision Fund 2. So that's why that we became relatively smaller uh, ticket sites in Vision Fund 2 compared to Vision Fund 1. So rather than aiming for the home run, but uh, try to uh, aim for first base hit or second uh, base hit, make sure that we have a good hits, and uh, not to emotionally devote too much uh, by myself but uh, we set uh, experts by region by sectors uh, and uh, systematically uh, review the investment cases and that made us more uh, comfortable and being more confident to able to invest in Vision Fund too.
0: So yeah, maybe experts will make it different this time, but I don't know if the ship captain is the same. We might expect the ship captain's results, which which to be sure were awesome in years past, but i have been pretty miserable when he uh, had runners on base, Ben, if you will. In any case, um, uh, we've got a really, really interesting interview, a company called Avadel Pharmaceuticals has come up with a treatment for uh, narcolepsy, uh, the likes of which have never been seen before. Very promising. Also a very expensive drug uh, for the consumers of that drug, but it could be a big change for their lives and a change for this company, Avadel. And an interesting CEO, Greg Divis, who 30 years ago was an offensive lineman for the University of Iowa and talks to us a little bit about what it was like to be, why being a college athlete and an athlete has changed his career as a CEO. And uh, indeed has helped his uh, ability to work with teams and work for the people, in this case, the people with narcolepsy disease for which the treatment's up to this, this far, have been pretty lousy. So here's that story right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another
1: critical event or insight ever with Era, Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy to use, customizable interface. That's Era,
0: A-I-E-R-A dot All right, welcome back to the Drill Down podcast. We are joined right now by Greg Divis. He is the CEO of a company called Avadel, fascinating biotech firm. That, well, I can't figure out where, where it's based. You're, you're in St. Louis, but uh, the firm's uh, technically based in Ireland. Is that right?
5: Yeah, we're technically headquartered in Dublin, Ireland. We run the company predominantly uh, out of uh, the U.S. and out of St. Louis.
0: Which is not anywhere near as important as the disease that you are trying to help, which um, uh, is one that I think people are sort of familiar with the concept of narcolepsy. And I realize there's more to it than that. but but generally you're 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 seeking to treat narcolepsy. Tell me about the disease itself
5: it's 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 really interesting and and in many ways, it's it's tremendously misunderstood, uh, especially how it's portrayed in the media and movies and things like that, where they just so show people just falling asleep randomly. And it's much more complicated and complex. It is a twenty four seven condition that is a rare sleep disorder where people with narcolepsy suffer from a a number of symptoms, but the cardinal symptoms are excessive daytime sleepiness, which is what it's exactly what it sounds like, but to a real extreme where people can fall asleep at, at really at any time and live in this world of extreme tiredness or extreme sleepiness, but also a condition called cataplexy, which is an involuntary loss of muscle control where upon some stimulus and usually some sort of emotion, uh, a patient or a person with narcolepsy could actually just collapse, lose the ability to stand or use their arm and be paralyzed for a period of time. Or drive very, or do the things or, we all or, take for granted. All the things you take for granted. It, it is a disease of the day and of the night, and we're really pleased to be able to bring a new innovation for, for these patients.
0: I do think it's an interesting disease in that it's something that we – you know, when you hear about someone with some rare pancreatic disorder or some skin condition or whatever, it's hard. There are so many uh, biotech firms that are really working hard to help people who suffer from things that most of us can't relate to. But the condition of falling asleep is one that we and and involuntarily is one of I think we can all kind of imagine.
5: Yeah, and it's it's and, and the treatments today, which is some of the challenges, is that for a sleep disorder that's characterized largely by disrupted or disturbed nocturnal sleep, the, t- the treatment options today actually have the potential to disrupt the night even more so.
0: so- well, let's talk about that. It's, it's, it, is, it is so absolutely bizarre that to treat the current standard of care for treating narcolepsy is to wake up in the middle of the night and take a second dose of a drug.
5: Yeah, it really is a phenomenon. You know, sodium oxibate or the oxibate molecule is a very effective drug, but it's act it's, as an active moiety, it's very short-lived, it's got a short half-life, it comes in and out of the body very fast, and it's highly unstable, and it's very hard to control the release of. So to get the full benefit of sodium oxibate, you have to take two doses, once at bedtime, and you and and then once you have to forcibly awaken yourself and sometimes many people in your household to be able to get up and take the second dose, which obviously and you have to do that in a 90 minute window. If you don't do it in a 90 minute window, it creates other potential complications for the patient. We've been able to solve that problem and bring the first once at bedtime or once nightly dosing. And our technology has allowed us to control the release of sodium oxybate by providing a formulation that allows patients to only take it once at bedtime.
0: And your drugs, cause, how do you pronounce it? Lumriz? LUMRISE. LUMRISE, Loom Loom Rise sorry, all, okay. all these drug names. I see them on, you know, when I watch 60 <laughs> Minutes on the weekend, I see all the ads for all these ridiculously named drugs. LUMRISE, well, that makes a little bit of sense. Uh, uh, so your drug is substantially different and so substantially different that you got an, an orphan drug designation, which surprised me because there are treatments for narcolepsy on the market?
5: Yeah, there's a few different standards for which the FDA can grant an orphan exclusivity to orphan drugs. And, and one of those is, is, is determined to be a major contribution to patient care. And, and when you look at, again, at the existing therapies on the marketplace that require the patient for a chronic condition to chronically night after night after night to forcibly awaken themselves, what FDA says is that in and of itself can fragment sleep and over time can, is a problem. And and as such, they deemed LUMRISE to be a major contribution to patient care uh, by eliminating the middle of the night and the related matters therein and, and, and granted us that exclusivity.
0: And yet that didn't get you out of doing, say, phase three studies or anything. You've, you've done an enormous amount of studies uh, of this drug and its efficacy and its safety.
5: Yeah, the, the, you know, we, we have a large pivotal trial uh, of over 200 people with narcolepsy who were enrolled in our trial. We've done a total of 11 different studies that have been exposed to hundreds of patients. And, and and the study was very compelling. And one of the big questions was, will a once nightly treatment actually work? Or do you need the second dose in the middle of the night? And what we demonstrated by exposing the patient to the same amount of drug during the sleeping period, but in a more natural kind of release profile, uh, we were able to deliver highly statistically significant results and we're seeing that bear out now with patients and people with narcolepsy who have gone on our therapy.
0: And you uh, talked about in a recent conference call, talked about some studies where um, uh, sort of customer surveys, essentially, of people who were using competitor drugs uh, and who had fallen off of treatment. And maybe no surprise, the biggest reason they fell off treatment is because they couldn't get around to that second dose. or that found the second dose just as disruptive as, as having the disease itself.
5: Yeah, we've done a lot of research to truly understand what we would characterize as the unmet need for these people with narcolepsy. And the single most important unmet need when it came to OxyBate therapy was really eliminating the middle of the night dose, right? Because if you're not taking both doses, you don't get the full therapeutic effect. We have heard from people with narcolepsy that they they miss the dose at times, or they take the dose, they have to struggle if they sleep to the alarm or they wake up too early. But at the end of the day, the, the number one unmet need from our research was was providing a once at bedtime treatment option. And and we're we're obviously very proud to do that. And in our studies where we've put people on our therapy who have switched from other treatments, and we've asked them which treatment option do you like? It's not surprising to know that, you know, ninety-four percent prefer our dosing option and would much rather not wake up in the middle of the night.
0: And you say you refer to it as a rare disease, but I think I read it was one out of two thousand people in the U.S. suffer from something like this, which doesn't seem incredibly rare to me.
5: It's it's a it's a large orphan condition, relatively speaking, defined by the FDA as two hundred thousand patients or less. So you know we know today there is somewhere around, depending on which data source, one hundred and sixty to one hundred and seventy thousand diagno- uniquely diagnosed patients with narcolepsy um who are u- under care and under treatment and to date in large part for some of the for, because some of the challenges with the treatment of waking up in the middle of the night a, a relatively small percentage actually get what is arguably the most effective treatment that and and you know we're here to try to you know help more people who are suffering and, and and really don't want to have the burden of having to wake up in the middle of the night
0: why were you able to develop this now why is this a possibility in 2023 and it wasn't I don't know, 10, 22 years ago.
5: It's been a decade long journey uh, for us. And, and, and ultimately a lot of companies have tried to try to, to because this just this, uh, the, the original twice nightly product has been on the market for over 20 years. So it has, people have tried to solve this problem and it takes a very unique technology to be able to control the release profile and, and, uh, and, and also at the same token deliver the amount of drug during the dosing period that is required to give the therapeutic effect. And our company, although we like to describe ourselves as a 30-year startup, because now we're in the market with our first real product launch using our technology, was founded on the basis of a drug delivery technology platform that's been its first 20 plus years doing that work for other companies. We've turned that technology in-house and you know, coming out of it first was this important treatment for narcolepsy. Uh, in the form of LumeRise, applying our technology, which has been able to prove t- that we can deliver, you know, sodium oxybate in once nightly dose and deliver the therapeutic effect that people are used to.
0: I wonder if there are other technologies that you've been able to use in the last few years that maybe change the way you do your business. Even information technology, the ability to monitor studies, the ability to, to uh, you know, be on top of your results, the ability to market your drug, the ability to find people for the test—I would imagine there are just general information technology tools that are available now that weren't uh, too long ago.
5: Well, we, uh, we've come a long way in my thirty-four years in this business—from using a phone book to find who you need to go talk to, to uh, or a yellow pages ad, to really sophisticated data analytic tools, predictive modeling tools you know, using, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, AI, and big data to really help you understand where's the right place to go. Who's the most likely patient who's gonna respond favorably to your treatment? Uh, Who's the, what is the next best thing to do to try to educate a patient or a physician or a healthcare provider on our treatment to help them offer, you know, new options for patients? All of those things are really on continuing to change year after year after year to provide better insights to be able to serve the patient communities we're trying to serve even better and hopefully deliver better care at the right time when the patient needs it.
0: Yellow pages, leave it for a university of Iowa guy to have to get the word yellow in there somewhere. You're somehow <laughs> going to have the iconography of, of university of Iowa. Um, but did you say, tell me you were, you were a college athlete.
5: I was, I was many day many moons ago back in the day at the university of Iowa, a member of their football does,
0: team. Does that inform the way you work? I'm curious.
5: Because I've got, it, I've got, I've got kids is. who play sports
0: and they're not, you know, my my son's a fantastic D3 runner, set some school records. I don't, I don't know what the rest of my kids will end up doing. They've all been high school athletes, but I wonder how that will affect them in, in their uh, lives. Uh, you know, I wonder if how that's affected you.
5: I don't think there's a lesson that I've learned in in the sporting world or in athletics or playing sports in college and being a part of a team, balancing priorities and responsibilities you know, competing and in a, in a world of meritocracy where results really matter, uh, but also having to do it as a team where you're dependent upon each other and building relationships. Those are all things that, that, that I rely on every single day. To this day, next to my father, you know, the head coach at the U- University of Iowa is one of the most important influencers in my life. He was my position coach at the time when I was at at the University of Iowa. So I think the life lessons learned uh, in the locker room, uh, you know, in the film room, on the field, are just life experiences, no matter what sport you play or what club you're involved in, that teaches you how to work with all different kinds of people from different environments, teaches you the importance of preparation, uh, make you're a coachable person, you see great leadership, and sometimes you see bad leadership. You learn what not to do as well during some of these journeys. But but I would never... um, I would say my experience as an athlete has been instrumental in forming you know, how I think about things, how we build teams, how we build culture, how we build a company, uh, much like we did when we were trying to build a team.
0: That's so interesting. If I were better at this interviewing thing, I would end it there, but I won't. Because I do want to talk to you about price and the price of the drug. Because um, it's 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 an interesting thing and a challenging thing for your industry writ large. But I, I think for your drug in particular, because you're coming in with a newer treatment where there's already an existing and expensive treatment. I read that, you know, at, at a full dosing option daily dosing of nine grams if someone needs to get that much that this could cost as much as more than two hundred thousand dollars a year for a patient but I've also heard you guys and with some investor materials and in some SEC filings say that you think the average cost will be a lot less than that to or the average revenue pr- to the company per user
5: yeah it, it's you know it, it, it's part of the dynamic in our industry where list price is something you list but it alt- ultimately Becomes irrelevant in terms of where you where you actually net out. You know, between all of your deductions, the 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 payers or the PBMs requiring contracts and discounts, and the fees you pay for them to be able to distribute your product, you know, as quote unquote in the in, in the middle of uh, uh, the middleman, so to speak. I, I would say it, it's just the phenomenon of the industry we live in. Our, our expectations today is we priced our drug. There's a bit of a range of the existing molecule that was in the marketplace. Um, between you know some different formulations. And we priced our drug at, at parity to kind of the middle of that range, not at the high end and, and just a little bit above the low end, um, but we priced it at parity to another product in the marketplace. And then knowing full well that as the second player coming in, you're likely gonna have to give some level of concessions to be able to get insurance companies to cover your drug. And uh, I would say right now, the way we think about it, and it's a very dynamic situation uh, in terms of how price actually will evolve, but we're seeing price, you know, ultimately settle in at a, at a meaningfully lower rate than than that list price. And equally as important as we've put in the programs and services to support the patient community, whether that's in the form of, you know, $0 out of pocket cost or uh, patient assistance programs were uninsured or underinsured or, or uh, people who have uh, certain economic, sta- you know, thresholds where they can't afford the drug, where we provide it for free. So we certainly are doing all we can to ensure that em- anyone who's eligible and wants to go on LoomRise has the opportunity to go on LoomRise.
0: In the last conference call, I think uh, you were talking about one, what, 120000 125000 per uh, kind of an average revenue to the company. Per user
5: yeah that's a, that, that's a that's a just a guidance right now from a yeah. modeling standpoint I think it's uh, you know you know that puts us kind of at parity to where the other products are in the space right now um, I think that will work itself over, over time and right now that's the kind of best estimate we're not there right now um, because uh, it's too early in our launch but nonetheless I think that's a reasonable guidance in terms of how we think about it uh, which today. means
0: ultimately peak sales opportunity here is probably a billion dollar drug.
5: Well, the opportunity certainly presents itself uh, based upon the unmet need, the patient population, and all the work we've done to really educate and understand the needs in the marketplace. So we all have always believe it's a billion-dollar opportunity, and it requires us to really execute incredibly well and serve this patient community the way they need to be served.
0: Would that include uh, possible treatments that you're not approved for yet, like pediatric? I mean, it's, it's bad enough trying to wake yourself up in the middle of the night, trying to wake up a kid with these problems in the middle of the night, another problem. Uh,
5: it's a really, it's a really interesting question and comment, and quite insightful. We hear as, as much from parents who have children with narcolepsy as we do from adults with narcolepsy, asking us when we are going to be able to pursue, you know, are they, it could be available for pediatric patients. And we're pleased to announce that two days ago we filed our supplemental application to the FDA to seek approval for the for for the pediatric uh, population for Loomeri. So it's really important for us to ensure that anyone who's a potential candidate are eligible to go on Lumerize. That we do the work to demonstrate that that our drug can help them, and and then pursue the right regulatory pathway.
0: Fascinating story, fascinating company. Uh, Greg Davis, we really appreciate your
5: time, joining us here. Today. Thank you for thank you for having us having yeah. us uh, on your on your on your podcast.
0: Great stuff, and that's not all. We'll hear about uh, the company uh, today. We we'll talk a little bit more, more about Avidel with the bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot. Right after this.
1: The down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com slash drilldown to learn more. That's b r a i n t r u s t. dot com slash drill, slash drilldown. And if you use that link, you'll get 20% off.
0: And we're back with the drill down bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot. So, Ben, uh, Avidel, Avidel, Avidel Pharmaceutical, whatever, Avadale Pharmaceutical, uh, interesting narcolepsy, interesting. Um, the jokes are right there for you, but we really mm-hmm. when people are suffering from something really serious like this, I'll, I'll leave that aside. Sure. Uh, uh, I once thought that my broadcast career was a uh, cause of narcolepsy. Turns out it's not. It's good to know. Um, it's, it's unfortunate to know the cost of this drug, uh, but they put so much into developing it, and it's right there um, uh, in line, as you heard, with the competitor drug, the Jazz Pharmaceuticals drug, which I think is called Zywave. Nonetheless, uh, the cost, that number, if you took the, nine, the maximum highly da- uh, highly highest daily dosing option of nine grams a day, this drug would cost you. a year. Now, as you heard, when negotiations with insurance companies and so on, that won't be the average revenue for this company, but that is how much this drug could cost a patient if they're pulling the full weight of that cost. But it's right there in line with the current thing on the market. And Ben, as you heard, you know, you don't have to get up in the middle of the night, wake yourself up after a few hours to fight narcolepsy, which seems like a crazy way to get treatment. Right, you've been listening to The Drilldown. We are grateful for your time. Ben Wilson, my fabulous co-host, and importantly, our editor extraordinaire. Futurum's The Drill down is a production of Futurum's The Business Podcast Network.